Daniel Stewart has been a key presence in Australia's underground music scene for the past 15 years. He sings in the groups Total Control and Straight Jacket Nation, and he keeps beat for the UV race. Each is superb and well worth your time. He also co-owns a record store in Melbourne and has started a publishing house. And he's published over 50, 50 issues of Distort, a long-running punk bag that features some of the most unconventional and lucid writing on music out there. Early issues of Distort were Lester Bangs-fueled manic love letters to the likes of Poison Idea and sketchy Cleveland hardcore. Over time, Daniel developed a unique voice shaped by non-rock literature and philosophy. It's a bit like reading D.H. Lawrence discussing your favorite artists. Startling, unwholesome, poetic thought. We ended up talking about friendship, band dynamics, the pandemic, Black Flag, the kinks, podcasting, and of course, Distort. Please enjoy. If you like what you hear, you'd be doing us a huge solid by leaving a rating or a review. Cheers. Friendship seems like a big deal to you. You devoted a whole issue of Distort to your friend Al Montfort. There's also this really touching scene in the music video for the Total Control song Flesh War, where one of your bandmates is waiting around and then you appear out of nowhere, you enthusiastically hug him, and you guys start walking down the street with your arms around each other like you're posing for the cover of Instead's Bonds of Friendship album. <laughs> it's like it's super poignant and I've watched, maybe it's because I've watched it a bunch of times, but I don't think it's this throwaway gesture. There's not really a question in there, but maybe any thoughts on friendship and maybe what friendship has meant for you during this pandemic? I can definitely start by saying, yes, very important, uh, friendship and family. As for how the pandemic plays into it, maybe I'll skip that, but maybe let's just like go back to that video because that it was very funny to hear your perspective on that. Um, so maybe it was a throwaway thing. No, no. So maybe talking about that video will kind of um, shine a light on that. So we put that video together. It was just a very like spontaneous idea that I had that had come because I'd spent this horrible night stuck in the back seat of a taxi in Berlin after I was at a bar with a bunch of people. Um, someone offered me a joint and I was extremely confident about my capacity to hold it and I ended up outside the bar just completely like on the street lying down next to a tree like way just completely ruined and um, my friend got us a cab and we got in the cab and I got in the back and I just remember staring out the window and watching the lights as they passed and just having this moment of not knowing what was going on, like at all, not knowing where I was going for starters, but also not really knowing what had happened because it, it had hit me really hard. That moment really inspired that film clip and the night that we put that together, we basically got a car and we got a camera and we had a plan to just go around the block in a car and basically just see what happened. So. The moment that you saw, we did two two laps of the block um, for that video. The first one, um, nothing really happened, and we were like, let's just try it one more time. We, we only really have the budget and the time to do it one more time, so that second time, the, we were like, that moment where the car pulled up and Zephyr was there was just what we decided like a moment before, and my embrace of Zephyr and us walking away was just of the moment completely. The car drives off 
James gets out of the car and runs away com- completely. We didn't know he was going to do that. And at that very moment, a friend of ours down the street, which you can't really see, but you can slightly see in, in, the, in the blur, had punched a fire alarm at a venue while his band was playing and set off the fire alarm. And there was all these fire engines just down the street. So there was this, <laughs> that, that night itself in that video, I love that video a lot. And that gesture that was captured was that warm embrace that you spoke about was, was legit. What kind of people do you surround yourself with, Daniel? Are you intentional about the friendships you cultivate and the kinds of friends you have? A lot of friendships that have lasted have happened very accidentally. So no, I don't think so. I think when I was younger, my criterion for friendship was very much based on the immediate surroundings of people that were into hardcore and punk music. And that was a very easy code to define someone's worth because, well, that's what that music does to you. It, it, it really chops out 99% of the human race immediately. Like you, you're, you, your your criteria for what's a valuable human really shrinks immediately. Not, I'm sure this isn't everyone's experience, but for me that that was what happened. As soon as I got into it, I got into it in a very obsessive and and militant manner. I was militant straight edge, very like immediately attracted to that mentality. And the I suppose what what I was really attracted to was was that feeling of like just narrowing humanity down to a really small pool of people that I could relate to because to step back for a second I'd spent my teenage years going from one side of Australia to the other so I went to four different high schools and experienced like and not just four different high schools but I went to four different high schools that would be the equivalent in Canada I suppose of wait I actually don't know the the layout of Canada too well, but <laughs> Toronto and Montreal are not close together, are they? No, about five, five, six hours apart. Okay, so if you could imagine going from Toronto to somewhere that's double the distance of Montreal to someone somewhere that's double the distance from there and double the distance from there, like Australia is a huge country. Yeah, that's and unreal. For, for our American listeners, um, I did the equivalent of basically like growing up in New York going to school for a little while in LA, going to school for a little while in Miami, and then going to school for a little while in Seattle, and then going to school for a little while in like North Carolina. So like huge distances traveled and huge, well, in the space, it was it was like nine to 12 months each, each time between moves. So it's not a lot of time to really adjust. And consequently, as soon as I discovered militant straight edge hardcore, I grabbed onto it so tightly because it was such a narrow identity and community that I could immediately just be like, yeah, these are my people. You found your tribe. Yeah. So I feel like from that kind of tribal beginning, I definitely learned people skills after that, but it took a while. (laughs) But I think I started with that attraction towards extreme mentalities that has always stayed with me like I'm I still when I meet people I'm, I'm always attracted to the extreme militant psychos but 
also <laughs> I've, I've learned um, with time to be a more reasonable and even tempered and also uh, open-minded individual and that that childhood extremism has not carried through like I don't have that criteria at all and my friendship group right now it's the blessed blessed kind of experience that you couldn't invite everyone over you know that thing where you're just like I could not have all of my friends in the same room yeah and I like that I like that feeling whereas when I was younger that was the absolute best feeling in the world that all of my friends could be in the same room. And I feel like youth is a time where you really, your identity is based on the people around you and then adulthood is the point where you're like, wait a second, like I don't need to agree with the other people around me. I don't need, we, we don't need to have the same values. Like we can certainly share certain values, but I don't need to have the same identity as you. How important is friendship in making art together? Oh, for music, it's very, it's very important. And it's not like friendship is just, as you know, like as friend, friendship involves, like a good friendship is the capacity to negotiate and resolve conflict. And when you introduce like creating art together, you have to be able to um, compromise on the things that need to comprom- be compromised on. And refuse to compromise on those things that you need to just stand with and just be confident in your own judgment with and a friend can recognize that and trust that so for me like yeah my bandmates are the most important people in my life over the last couple of decades have taught me the most and have been the most um, instrumental in exposing the most importantly like those weaknesses in judgment where you don't compromise and then something is in the end compromised by that you know so and that's a that's a very important thing I think the yeah the most important thing that doing music in a band for me and I've tried doing music by myself but it's never worked is that relationship that you have with someone else even if it's just one other person is so important at, at exposing th- that process of of standing strong or um, allowing someone else's judgment to to, to to reign. That requires so much trust, and it's it's a very intimate experience. And and this is something that I always found interesting about the most like nihilistic hardcore band or you know black metal band or whatever. When it, whenever you think of nihilistic music like even down to power electronics and anything that's like a solo project interests me to a certain extent but I'm always way more interested and attracted towards when it's like a group of people even if it's just two people like the process of making music as part of a a group a a band like a gang or whatever has always attracted me more and no matter how desperately nihilistic and misanthropic you might be if you're if you're like if you are involved in a group even if it's just two people you you need to learn like trust and you need to like you that and and that's like the most important thing that makes that work because if you don't trust someone else's judgment 
And if you don't trust someone else's capacity to say, like, this is right, this is true, like, we need to do this or whatever. Even, like, when I think about, like, the nihilistics, for instance, like, who, who are a um, delightful example of, like, a, someone who works in a morgue telling you to kill yourself. Hardcore band. Like, so like so 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 confronting and and evil in so many respects like at the end of the day those guys probably had a lot of love for each other and that's really comforting to me you know like even like things like bands like mayhem or whatever will always be more interesting than bands like burzum for me because of that trust it's not pure ego either like they yeah, they may seem like psychopaths or sociopaths and maybe are to some extent, but if they're able to maybe submit to that process and, and bend a little bit and show some flexibility, there's there's a humanness maybe that comes through. Yeah, I just picture that the most mundane experiences of being in a band is agreeing to be in a certain place at a certain time with like strings on your guitar and drumsticks in your bag or whatever like the most like mundane experiences of being in a band means that like when you rock up to that spot you trust the person with you is going to have the shit they need and you're not going to spend like an hour running around to guitar shops trying to find picks for them or whatever shit they need and that to me that like that like a band really can't happen unless like that can happen and that to me it kind of deflates a lot of the mystique around the most evil bands because I'm like, I'm like, you guys definitely care about each other. If not anything else in the world, like you care about each other. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It does. Yeah, it totally blows away the mystique when when you think of these larger than life kind of crazy bands going to like, oh, I, I better get picks for the band and, and get some extra strings and, and maybe pick up a coffee for them too. It really brings them down to earth, eh? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I feel like that's because of having done bands for so long and having done bands like well, like having been there when people asked me to be there and, you know, arrived at the show reasonably cogent and, and ready to play or whatever and and knowing how much that trust is a part of that dynamic, whenever a band is somewhat successful or has at least been able to get their shit together enough to put a record together, yeah, you're right. It does blow away that mystique, that that kind of nihilistic or misanthropic mystique, um, which doesn't rob the music of its value. But I suppose for me, I just really enjoy the idea of someone from Mayhem, for instance, buying their bandmate extra guitar strings because they knew that they might be out of them or something. That like those simple gestures that must have happened. Because you don't stay in a band with people that don't do that shit. Like it loses its its appeal after a while when you're surrounded by narcissistic, egotistic fuckwits. Um, <laughs> so those little gestures do often play through in my mind. Yeah. It's really interesting talking about like these these things that make for functionality in a band and make for good relationships and make for yeah, like sound a sound basis for musical success like you were saying. 
I always think of Joe Carducci and some of the stuff that he writes in Rock and the Pop Narcotic about these totally dysfunctional bands that were always coming to blows over stuff or just like, we're not talking. Like Black Flag, there's other, I mean, there's a million examples too, but Black Flag comes comes to mind pretty quickly. Is there something to be said for bands that can't stand each other, but but that tension results in, in some amazing music. Have you ever been part of that or witnessed anything like that too? I haven't been a part of that. And yeah, I, it hasn't been part of any band that I've been in or any creative relationship I've been in. And I often think about that. And I've always celebrated those bands that I feel like from the outside, you can see that that mutual hatred or hostility between members is the fire that provides them with fuel but I often question how much of that is myth making because for instance Black Flag there's there's some pretty complex psychologies going on there but I would always question how horrible it actually was like how bad it actually was and if it was as bad as it was how much the mentality or the psychology behind that loved that and welcomed that as in the the deprivation and the Greg Ginn yelling at you because you were two minutes late to practice, like those kinds of things. I wonder how much certain psychological types like loved that feeling. Like, but particularly people like like if we look at Rollins, who's one of the great myth makers of Black Flag, having grown up in a family with like a military history, that kind of feeling might have been. And I imagine this is how I've always read it, like that would have been so incredible to be able to be part of an army, to be yelled at by a superior and not have to go to war, like just have to get on stage and play and still like somewhat, maybe we could stretch this as far as possible, (laughs) kind of give a little like nod to to daddy while you're doing it Um, (laughs) because it is horrible and it is like unpleasant or whatever. But would you really stick with something for that long if it was that fucking terrible? Like there must be something, and I don't believe it would come externally. Like there must be something internally to the band dynamic for people like that that like satisfies them. And if if you're like a somewhat masochistic individual or you crave like order, structure, discipline to come from the outside of you, sure, you'll, you'll be in a band with someone who's an absolute tyrant, but whether that's a terrible or, or a bad thing for you, like maybe that's just what you've always asked for. Yeah, I think that's like the best, that's like a masterful nutshelling of like Henry Rollins' psyche, I think. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, and I haven't thought about him for a very long time, actually. And I haven't actually thought about Black Flag for a very long time. I feel at some stage of my life, Black Flag was the band that defined how good another band could be like for and and not just some stage like for a very long time like they were the benchmark and the the ideal of of what a band could do and and what a band could be and then they released that weird record with like the green blob on the cover so that was kind of that was the moment where the it just like popped for me and they could have gone on forever and been, you know, my ideal band. But then that kind of, that just 
completely fucked it for me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, 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 and from then on, like, it was so difficult to deal with all of the horrible shit that they put out, all the boring songs and boring records and, and all of the early shit that I'd always, like, been like, okay, this shit's, like, good because of X reason or whatever. When that happened, I was like, fuck it. Like, I'm, I'm off it. And so for a long time, I haven't even thought about it, and I really rarely listen to them. For, for me now, they're a party band. If someone puts them on, I'm at a party. I'm a very happy person, but I'm not going to put them on at home by myself while I'm doing the dishes or something. You know? Wow. <laughs> Would the 20-something Daniel Stewart be shocked by this? Um, I think the 20-something Daniel Stewart would have been very shocked by Black Flag doing what they did. And this was almost like a religious thing for me, you know? Like for me, they were the ideal. So so when you lose someone like that, and it's always healthy to lose that. It's always healthy to lose a hero or an idol or something like that, especially like when it's something is Black Flag are by, by far the not not the greatest band ever and have so many ridiculously bad moments and songs. But for so long, it was so easy for me to maintain their dominance because they hadn't reformed and they hadn't done what bands do, you know? Yeah. So then it was pretty easy to go like, fuck them. Credence are the best. Like, (laughs) and you know, like, and if Credence ever get back together and do a record like that, I'm sure I'll have the same feeling. But right now, and here's the thing, like Sabbath are the best. Even though they've done the terrible reunion records, they they still get away with it. And there's no real reason for that. And that's probably why they get away with it for me because I don't – I'm, I'm a, a very obsessive – rationalizer and i have a reason for most things but black sabbath is a mystical and magical thing that i don't (laughs) want to analyze like i'm just happy for them to be the best you mentioned obsessiveness like you're obsessed with black flag and you have sort of an obsessive personality did you start the zine because you were obsessive about this music daniel was this like a way to work that obsession out of yourself yeah definitely i feel generally that everything that I do, even the music that I make is born from that obsessive nature. It's a a strange thing to talk about because I've never been outside it. So I've never kind of, I've never been very casual about (laughs) the things that I get into. (laughs) And so I don't understand hobbies, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like I don't understand interests i guess because i'm working this job where i see resumes occasionally and people list their hobbies and their interests as part of you know painting a picture of who they are and giving some perspective on their personality and both of those words when i when i when i try and think about what i list there it would be very difficult for me because i don't really have hobbies i don't really have interests I don't kind of dip my toe in and that's been the case forever. So it's, so yeah, definitely the zine was a response to that uh, obsessions and, and my obsessive nature and 
the bands that I do are definitely a response to that as well. Also, this ragu that I'm cooking would be part of that <laughs> as well. <laughs> like, it's it's a and and it's difficult to talk about it. As I said, like it's difficult to think about it from from a distance because it's it's very much tied into my personality. I'm trying to think of things that I've been very kind of casual with, but I think the moment that I decide, okay, this is an interest, I'll start carving a place in my life for it and put it on a platform and gather berries and <laughs> fine jewels and stuff and pray to it. Like it will immediately become a ritualistic experience and I'll immediately become devoted to it. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's definitely built into my mentality. I think. I'm thinking about your, your mag life stinks. I like the kinks where you're obsessed with, and, and you're open about your obsession, but you're also self-aware and self-critical as well and kind of hating yourself and trying to break free from your obsession as well too. So it's, is it complex? Well, yeah, I mean, that was my easiest way of expressing and showing what the kind of consequences of that mentality are like. And I suppose that was the point when I started writing that, that I, because when I got into the kinks, it was such a manic obsession and it it came because when I was into punk music I didn't give a shit about anything outside of that kind of that that wasn't able to be kind of codified in that and I'd certainly like occasionally listen to things and if I got into like something like gangster rap I would get into it really obsessively but I'd always dip out of it and like punk was like kind of the definitive identity and, and, and musical choice that I'd kind of stick with and it would define whether or not something else would, would correspond. And the Kinks was like this rare obsession where it was a band that was a pop band ostensibly and a band that everyone I knew knew about, everyone, you, you know. No one doesn't know about the Kinks. They're, they're like butter, you know. Everyone <laughs> knows about them. So for me, when I got into them, I had to go absolutely ham on it and get like psycho about it. And it wasn't that hard because they're an absolutely fantastic band and they have so much to offer and so many incredible songs for starters. But they also have like ultimately, and this drives the obsession, they have this like layer and background of their own. I suppose, yeah, I mean, they they have their own kind of obsessive qualities and, and that kind of fuels what they've done, you know? So it was easy to, once I started recognizing those things and especially the mania behind it and the kind of mental fragility that was so apparent in, in the part of Ray Davies, that was so easy for me to just start going absolutely mental. So did you work that out of your system when you did all those scenes? How did you come out of it at the end? Did you feel more obsessed? cured, less obsessed, healthier? Where where did things stand? Where do they stand now with the Kinks? Um, I listen to the Kinks still pretty much every day. Like yesterday, I listened to Arthur and Village Green. Let's say every week, actually, because there's certainly other obsessions that have taken hold of me. But 
if, if I put a record on, I'm putting another record on afterwards. And I'm also messaging a friend and being like, have you heard this song? And kind of getting back into that state. It's, it's, it's definitely odd. So yeah, definitely not cured. And there's definitely still things that I really want to write about them because I, I feel like the kinks will have their time for as long as Western culture obsesses with this kind of nostalgic sentimentality about the past, sentimentality about the past. And I feel like that will really continue for as long as the British Empire has any kind of power over the Western imagination. And that will continue for quite a while, I feel. So the, the kinks have this, have carved this kind of spot out that, that will continue to resonate. And for me, they, they, they have these like moments where I'm just like, okay, this is definitely a time for the kinks, or this is a, definitely a moment for a kink song. And you're kind of at peace with it, it sounds like. You recognize that, okay, this is, this is just a fact of life. People are going to be into the kinks. And you see that, yeah, this this may not be like healthy, and it's part of it's feeding into this like nostalgia. But you're at peace with it. Well, I feel like for starters, I that that kind of nostalgia is for me the one of the greatest poisons of modern culture. And and the Kinks, they weren't entirely uncritical of it, but they also kind of were ahead of the curve because before their, I mean, at the moment that their kind of pop moment and the, and the attention that was being paid to them at that very moment that they started becoming a bit naff and a bit like, you know, young people were a bit like, oh, you know, look at what Pink Floyd is doing. Like that's crazy. And then look at these guys, like this is a bit naff, you know, uh-huh. at that very moment, I feel like they were doing that. And when you read interviews with them, they were, they were very proud that that's what they were doing, that they were representing this, you know, they were into they were into tea and scones and lager and they weren't into like speed and, and acid and stuff like that. So that I feel like they they were they were very aware that they were about to kind of lose that they, they weren't able to go down that road of being, you know, trippers and and like proper like hippies and, and all that kind of stuff. But I also feel that they weren't entirely comfortable with whatever kind of spot that they were going to be in because ultimately like the they the kinks is they were saying that that they're that they're freaks you know then they're weird and they're not like they're not comfortable wherever they wherever they ended up like they still sound and look strange and whatever the decision that they made they always ended up in a in, in a position that i don't feel they were entirely comfortable in so for that reason i feel like they'll always be able to i'll always be able to celebrate them and one of the things that inspired that last issue of the kinks was i was just revisiting the sopranos and i was looking through the sopranos soundtracks and i was noticed there was a king song on there that i hadn't heard before it was from one of their 80s records listened to it and then that just kind of started everything again so yeah no matter how long i try and kind of put some distance there it'll just take and even like you know there's amazing songs from the 80s that i never expected would resonate but at some stage they're going to there's something yeah i'd never even thought about that but yeah there's they didn't quite ever fit in and and there's something maybe almost countercultural about their being kind of more establishments than some of these other bands right yeah i always feel like when you look at their photo shoots they they're, they're just standing too straight 
and their hair just doesn't look right. Like there's always something about them that just like they, I feel like what you had there was like this, these two brothers that were incredibly talented songwriters in their own right, but also had this like really toxic relationship. Mm-hmm. So for starters, like, they, you know, and, and, and that itself is part of the history and mythology of the band. But it also really defined from the very start, like what to expect from them, because primarily they're like just great songwriters, but they, they couldn't be, I don't think they could ever agree on what they were and what they wanted to do. And for that reason, that everything's always just a bit off and a bit kind of, oh, that's a bit weird. Like, you know, why did you do that? Like, why did you make that decision? And I feel like there's this moment where Dave Davies started um, doing these really weird videos and dressing in drag and really pushing like what became like, I, I guess, like what Bowie kind of did. And that could have been a moment, but he didn't go with that at all. You know, he, he kind of saw that this thing was coming where like there was like Lou Reed's and David Bowie's on the horizon that would really kind of play with gender and that in in pop music or whatever. But he got kind of reabsorbed within the kinks because they, they could never really do something that was entirely ahead of the curve, like, or that was entirely like new or whatever. Ultimately, they were extremely conservative and whatever whatever kind of marketing or management around them was extremely conservative and so they would have these moments of like weirdness or whatever but then ultimately they would present themselves as this kind of conservative boring kind of band and all the things that we love about them I feel are in spite of that if that's the best way of expressing well I hope you keep writing about them I really want somebody Maybe it'll be you to write about Ray Davies' voice. His voice is is easy to get obsessed over. Just his phrasings and like the odd qualities. It's got this like droney quality in certain songs. It's it's this lazy, weird inspired delivery that's like nobody else. Yeah, you're right. And there's also something about it that I discovered as I was trying to trying to kind of absorb his influence within a couple of Total Control songs because Mikey is such a massive fan of the Kinks and I was like, maybe I'll try and do that. He sings really quietly. He sings and really like close to the mic but really quietly, Um, which is not something that's easy to do when you've grown up playing in hardcore and punk bands. And it's kind of defined in many respects like, the, the hardest part about doing Total Control, which is always try to do these kind of ambitious kind of pop moments, is the fact that I'm not very good at things like that, like getting close to the mic, singing softly, singing in key, you know, <laughs> like, you know, trying those kinds of things. And when I noticed that about Ray, it actually gave me a lot of confidence because in some respects, like you said, quite lazy and I can't, fuck man, I never can remember people's names, but I think it's, Bernard Summers from New Order. Is okay. That his name? I, Do you know his name? I don't. Anyway, I don't. he's 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 another one that I'm just always so amazed by his history and career because he's so quiet and kind of flat and like near the mic, and it's I've always been like quite jealous of people that can sing like that. Well none of these guys have ever sang for like a Japanese inspired hardcore band and what you're doing in Total Control as well. So, you know, respect where it's due. 
I really love that you just said that. That makes me feel really fantastic. <laughs> Cheers. Well, I was before my wife went up to sleep, I was playing some of your music. She's like, who's this again? I said, it's Total Control. She's like, oh, yeah, who are they? I'm like, I'm talking to Daniel tonight. She's like, oh, that. And then I played some Straight Jack Nation. I'm like, this is him too. She said, what? <laughs> so, like, it couldn't be more different, which is baffling. And it's kind of lovely to baffle people's expectations, eh? Yeah, definitely. And it's very strange to go between because they're two very different. Obviously, the performance of them is, is very different, but also the the mentality that they have is quite different. There's definitely some crossovers, but one of them, like Stray Jacket, leaves me kind of feeling as if I can exist in the world. Like it's it's like this enormous outpouring expression of anxiety, but ultimately it allows me this kind of peace in the world. Whereas um, Total Control has this complexity to it that I've never really managed to resolve, but it's always made it harder and harder to be in the world, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely they both, I couldn't imagine doing one without the other, if that makes sense. Like I couldn't, it, I definitely need to do them both in order to kind of function. And the last year, obviously not being able to do either of them has revealed how important that is for me. Have you guys been practicing in the last year during the pandemic? Oh, not at all. Well, for starters, um, a couple of members of Total Control live in Sydney now and okay. Perth, so they're not like at all local. But also in Melbourne, we couldn't actually be in the same place as each other for like six months. There was a lockdown that was so strict and so profoundly restrictive on your movements that I didn't even see the members for, for, for pretty much all of last year. In fact, when I try and think about it, I can't remember the last time I saw um, everyone from Stray Jack in the same place. It's been a really long time. Like UB Race, um, my other band that I drum for, just played a couple shows over the last month that are the first shows that I've played since maybe around this time last year. And that's the longest time that I haven't played music for ever like for for the last almost like 20 years what was that experience like yeah very strange in in some respects my the last few years i've felt more and more alien at shows and more and more kind of uncomfortable in that environment but at the same time now that i realize that i how important playing shows is to me like the actual you know there's the two things there's the social side of being at shows and then there's the side of having a job to do or you know performing or whatever and the social side has started becoming more and more overwhelming as i've realized i have this strange personality trait where people confide their anxieties and their strangers you know friends and but but also like most important to this point is 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 complete strangers or people that i know very casually like you go to shows for a few time you meet some people whatever it is about my personality that people confide some really dark and traumatic shit. And that started really weighing on me um, and making shows like a lot more difficult. And then the lockdown happened and shows stopped. And I was just like, in some senses, I'm relieved to not be exposed to that. But in many senses, I've lost so much about who I am and what I do on this earth, you know? 
And this will be a, a, gl- a global reckoning, like we're, wherever we are in the world, which makes this moment so potent and so complex is that whoever we are, wherever we are, we're having to reconsider essentially who we are, you know, and mm-hmm. what, you know, what our values are, what matters to us. We've heard so much about this moment and obviously this is not anything new to say this, but the effects of the lockdown in Melbourne for for a lot of people that I know are not going to really be apparent for quite some time because we're still having to wear masks, um, you know, everywhere we go. We still wear masks on the trams when we get around. So we're still constantly like in that space and we're still, whenever we see that, we're still reminded of this time where we couldn't leave our house for like more than five kilometers to where we live. So we're really confined in these spaces. And that's the first time that's happened in, in our lives. And for, for our generation and even our parents' generation, like going back to further from that, it's the first time the world has really actually like agreed on something. So, so it's a monumental event and it still has, it's still having its effects like, day to day i'm still having discussions about it and 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 feeling the effects of it but for me my entire life was structured around playing shows touring you know all those kinds of things and and that changed so dramatically but without i mean the, this is the position that we find ourselves in often as kind of if you can say like this like you know social outsiders or cultural outsiders or whatever but there's no one there to offer support or guidance right now like we need to figure this out completely alone and it's it's going to be really difficult it's going to be a really challenging time for us are you looking forward to playing more shows and does it feel like playing more shows is going to help you reconnect with who you are and, and your identity and i feel in some senses that 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 i've abandoned that and i have a you know I'm, I'm very quick to adapt. And so like, I'm not really, I I don't have this expectation that there's going to be a return to how things were. And what I'm focused on more is like trying to adapt to this new reality and trying to figure out what's going on. And I don't think shows are going to be the same as they were, or at least for quite some time. And so I don't, I'm not like kind of looking to that, but playing shows on the, over the last weekends with UV Race was absolutely fantastic. Just being able to drum again um, with a band itself, like that was really, like we couldn't even jam. We couldn't even be together in a jam room for like that long. So just being able to drum, that physical feeling of drumming was an absolute, like a glorious pleasure and such a a feeling of, of release and relief. But... I'm not really like focused on playing more shows, but I am focused on that feeling of being in a room with, with my bandmates. I want that back so much. You mentioned adapting and trying to like figure out next steps. What are some of the things you're up to these days, Daniel? Well, I started a publishing company during lockdown with my friend Mumwood. And the last week we've put together four books. We've kind of been somewhat developing them over the last six months or so but we had a reason to get them together this last week so we just put together four books and the publishing company is it also turned into a podcast so 
really the last three months has been really intensely related to that. So we've been um, weekly uh, interviewing people, chasing interviews, editing interviews, much as you're probably familiar with. Um, yeah, but your schedule puts me to shame. <laughs> you're on a weekly schedule, man. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been yeah, it's been pretty mental, and it's been it's it, but it's been very rewarding because it's it's a whole new world for me. It's a whole new. It's pretty it's pretty good right now to talk about what you're doing because I feel the I was always a bit like suspect about podcasts, and I never really understood the appeal to it really until the moment where I was kind of in the position of making one. And then I realized, oh, this is like doing a zine. Like you don't have to ask anyone's permission to do this. And like, you can just do it and get it out there. Like the the allegory is not that strong, but you know, there's a photocopier, you can make a zine. There's platforms to release your podcast on. You can like get it out there. Like it's a, for me, there's, there's something there that kind of immediately it made sense to me. Mahmoud had a lot more experience with it. He'd done um, an audio book and he'd done a podcast as well. So for him, it was definitely familiar territory. For me, it was new. And we were kind of doing it alongside of the publishing house, but the publishing stuff slowed down so much once we started doing the podcast that it's only really the last few weeks that we've decided to go fortnightly and then that gave us the space to get these new books done. If you had to describe it to somebody, what you're interviewing people on the podcast, and it's called Monta Icons, who are the kind of people you guys are chatting with? Well, very loosely, when we started talking about doing the publishing house in general, and this definitely defined what the podcast was doing, we wanted to negotiate modern culture and figure out what counterculture is right now. Because both of us had grown up in very different ways and and in many respects, extremely different ways. But we we both had this attraction to counterculture. And Mahmoud and I met because he was getting tattooed by a couple of friends and asked around for me. And I looked him up and he was he just stopped being involved in outlaw motorcycle gangs. And he'd started being a journalist. And his journalism was really based around exploring drill music Drill music was really just starting to happen in Australia. And for people that are not familiar with it, it's really violent and aggressive rap music. It's closely related to grime. It's kind of the the next step from that. So we definitely bonded immediately over our interests in that, our interests in literature. And when we just decided to start publishing stuff together, it was really because we just wanted to, both of us, that was our, our ideal future was involved in publishing books because we both, that was our main upset, mutual obsession was um, books. Especially we, we both really related to each other because we both had a profound experience reading um, Yukio Mishima, the Japanese writer. Hmm. So we, when we decided to do the podcast, it was really just a way of learning podcasts for me and for Mahmoud just for him to continue the skills that he developed there but we were working for a podcast company and doing it basically to develop our skills in producing other people's podcasts but it turned out that the podcast that we did ended up being the kind of figurehead of the company itself but also 
for us immediately gratifying and we really enjoy doing it. So we just, we're really just, I mean, for me personally, I'm trying to answer that question because that interests me. Like what is counterculture right now? What, who are the countercultural icons? Like, but the way that we approach our debt, our guests is not about answering that question. Really. We just find these people in some respects representative of that. So we, we speak to academics who are well-versed in philosophy and we speak to people from prison gangs. We speak to musicians, filmmakers, writers, artists, not a whole lot of in common between them, but a kind of, we hope, a shared mentality. Yeah, I think there's some kind of through line there. There's like an outsider kind of subversive aspect to what they do maybe? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's, and for some people, the experience of being a cultural outsider would be based on their background within gangs and criminal culture. For some people, it's a political thing that they've like been political activists or revolutionaries and they've, that's their background. So for some people, they're artists. And I think drawing those distinctions, or, but also like looking at what people are aiming for common across those spaces, for me, that's been really valuable. I've always thought that the most important thing that you can do if you're working with within these spaces is to connect really disparate people that are kind of aiming towards the same direction. Like even if it's quite vague, like even that connection between them can be, and it has been in my own life, so valuable to be exposed to influences that are completely from outside my world, but are aiming somewhat in the same direction. Whether, whether it be like someone handing me a book of poetry and just being like, oh, this is definitely not something that I'd be into. Like I fucking hate poetry. And then finding, <laughs> um, which is what happened when someone gave me Raina Maria Brooka. It, it just responded to me in, in, a, in, in a way that I just didn't expect. So I don't think people would like everything that we're doing, certainly. And just like I said, like I don't think all my friends could exist in the same room, but I feel like... The important thing is that there are like certain kind of commonalities and maybe it could just come down to these are like extreme personalities that are living like lives that are not conventional and they're, they're doing unconventional things, you know? Yeah. My listeners are going to hate me if I don't talk more about Distort. Can we talk a bit more about Distort, Daniel? Yeah, yeah, sure, for sure. You did like over, you did over 50 issues of Distort and like side issues and things and you didn't start the mag when you were like in your 50s or 60s, so you started it when you were much younger, so there's lots of time for growth. What are some of the ways that the magazine developed? And what are some of the ways maybe that you developed as a writer, I guess? And how did that shape the identity of the mag? Well, I think when I started this thought, I'd come from doing like a couple of different punk and hardcore fanzines when I was younger. And I'd I didn't really have a solid idea of what I wanted to do with the store, but I knew that I wanted it to be unconventional in terms of the, the, the hardcore and punk fanzines that I was reading and that I was putting it, the, the scene that I was putting it within. So I didn't, I didn't really know too much about what I wanted it to be, but I knew that I didn't want it to be like everything else that was happening at the time. And also I felt and it started really at the point where the internet was and social media was becoming really powerful sources 
of media within punk and hardcore and I could see where that was going to lead as in now I could see that if there wasn't a media that was coming out of punk and hardcore if we weren't making our own media that it would end up being completely co-opted by these these kind of corporate media channels so I was very wary of that and if anything, punk and hardcore for me always was defined by like the kind of insular, introverted way that it pushed away other sources of media and it, and it documented itself. And it was like, no, 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 like we're not going to be co-opted or presented by corporate media. Like we're going to present ourselves and we're going to document ourselves. So that for me was a major attraction when I got into punk and hardcore and why I got into fanzine culture in general. So I wanted to continue that legacy while we were living in this world of like the internet and how easy it was to promote shows and promote bands and stuff with the internet. So that that moment itself was full of debate and contention between people and, and people were being called sellouts for having a MySpace page and other people were like fully celebrating the birth of Facebook and the connections that it made because it allowed for, uh, you know, exposure to a far, you know, a huge amount of people that you never would be exposed to or whatever. So there was a lot of debate and there was a lot of, it was a pretty intense moment. So Distort, I, I felt in, in some respects was, I was creating it as if the internet didn't exist. I never put like a website or an email in there. I printed issues and didn't reprint them like purposely so they would like exist, that they would be out in the world and, you know, they would be lost or like no one really holds on to those things. Um, so there was a lot about it that was calculated to be, as I saw the hyper documentation that the internet was affording punk and hardcore, I was like, the, you know, I enjoyed that tempora temporary nature of zines that they would really like exist to document a moment and then they would become irrelevant and you can flick through old zines and get get a lot out of them certainly like but the importance for me was always that you they would come at a moment and they'll document a moment and then that moment would be passed there's a strange thing about it that even though they are physical and they can last forever when you read them outside of the moment that they happened you're not reading them generally as they were intended and that was what distort was always distort was always intended to document these like moments and i would always do them really quickly and generally around straitjacket shows so if we had a show coming up and and i had the chance to kind of put something together i would rush to get it done that was kind of the the, the way that deadlines were imposed for it and now when i go through a lot of old issues i can see how terrible that decision was, like how, <laughs> like how much I rushed um, writing and artwork and like, and it's and when you look at them outside of that, it's so, it's so easy. Like I've been asked a few times to put together um, a couple of publishing companies that approached me and asked me to put together like a book of old distorts um, or, or all of distort, which would be just fucking way too big. But in general, like I've been asked a few times to compile them and every time I go back to them I'm just like this doesn't really make a lot of sense 
outside of the moment that I did it in so many respects because I was like trying to not really document a scene but a whole bunch of different scenes or a whole bunch of different bands that crossed over in different scenes in different worlds so that they really made a lot more sense when I did them than I do now and and I've actually started putting together a kind of archival edition of Distort where I pulled some of the pages and some of the pieces of writing that kind of I feel like are able to be read now and that don't suffer from that lack of context that yeah. I think I think is so important as I've started doing that and and really not a lot is surviving like I've put together maybe two or three pages at most from each issue but I am finding I was dreading it but it's actually been quite pleasurable to kind of look through the the legacy and the history of the story if you'd asked me to do this interview six months ago I think I would have been way more had a way more reluctance to do it and and been way more nervous about it but having spent the last few months like slowly putting together these archival editions I think I have like a good perspective on it and I'm really hypercritical of anything that I've done and it's really hard for me that's part of the reason why I only printed like you know in the early issues like 100 maybe later 300 500 maybe a thousand at the most but um, once they were gone like I never reread them or even thought about them like that would that they were for like an audience that existed and then after that I never considered that I'd be in the position of being like, okay, like let's reread, let's, let's reconsider this outside of that moment. Right now is a is a right time to ask me about this stuff. Good, good. I'm I'm glad you're at a better kind of place to consider these things. And honestly, Daniel, the writing's amazing, and it grew as well too. You your chops, your interests also grew. Do you think at some point? Do you recall where? you just started bringing in other influences. I think initially you seem to be really inspired by Lester Bangs. I know his name would come up in, in some of the early issues and, and that energetic uh, style. There were just a lot, one observation when I was, I've been reading through some of the archives you sent me and some of my back issues, there were a lot more words in the early issues, just this gush of words. And then some of the later ones, your writing becomes more sort of carefully considered and crisp and inspired by non-music writing. Was that something that you noticed as well? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think when I was younger, I mean, I think when I started it, it was much more inspired by and motivated by uh, a really narrow range of influences. And that would definitely have Lester Bangs up the top. But I think as it went on, I felt more comfortable exploring the other things that I was reading, but also I felt in general that my writing, I could be a bit more free with it. So I can't really track right now how that influence played out, but I, there definitely was these points where I was just like, this distort really just is whatever I'm writing right now, because there's not like, it's not like it's a huge, important cultural thing that I need to be respectful to, um, one particular format or one particular structure of how I do it. Like if it's really just me in my bedroom and or, you know, in my study if I could afford that at the time. But it was just me uh, alone. And when I became more confident about exploring other kind of ideas and influences that I'd been 
exposed to. In some respects, like the people that were just there to read about hardcore and punk bands were like disappointed and kind of bailed on me, but the audience opened up a lot more and I found that I was getting a lot of feedback um, from people that were just kind of happy to see me kind of go with it. So that's really the point where I just decided each issue, I'm just going to do what I feel like doing. Yeah. And I mentioned at the start of our interview, you devoted a whole issue to one of your bandmates, just as this loving tribute to your friendship and, and what it's meant to you and, and his contributions to the Aussie underground. You would do issues devoted to obscure artists, just interviews around them. My guess is, like you're saying, you probably lost some of the traditional sort of hardcore audience. But I also, I think you probably had amassed an audience and enough interest and sort of had enough clout at that point that people kind of wanted to read you on whatever you happened to be interested in. Yeah, I think also it was, I'd stopped playing just in straight jacket. So I also had UV Race and Total Control and the, the audience that had come along for that. So there was definitely that audience that wasn't really into hardcore or whatever, but was into kind of weird kind of punk stuff or even like the more um, highbrow kind of stuff that was going into Total Control. So I had that advantage at the time, but I I think I also just had this need to just shed. I just got to a point and everyone gets to this point where they're just like, I can't be hanging around with and exposed to angry young hardcore men anymore. Mm-hmm. Like this can't be the majority of my kind of friendship group or even like conversational group or even like the the people like that I see. Like, you know, we, we all reach a limit when we're exposed to the same group of people and the same ideas. And while hardcore still remains a very important thing for me as I'm still very excited about um, new hardcore bands and new records and going to shows and stuff. There's a certain type of mentality that exists within that world that just becomes exhausting to be around for ages. Like, and one thing that I tried to do with the store was just like really at some point just like uh, show how unimportant those people were to me and how disinterested I was in their angst and their anger and their sadness. Like, which was like a bit rude, and I definitely copped a bit of a backlash to that. But it was a very calculated attempt to kind of define who I wasn't. <laughs> that came up in an interview I did with this guy. Do you know Tony Retman? He's written some books on hardcore and... Yeah, yeah. He, he Did he write the book on Detroit hardcore? He did, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an yeah, amazing book. It's yeah. so good. And uh, he he grew up in like late 80s New York City hardcore and then left straight edge and hardcore and got into kind of weird fringy noise, forced exposure type stuff and would intentionally just throw in like a Grateful Dead interview or like a Grateful Dead review in there and talking about working at a record store and hardcore people would come in. So he'd just put on like Santana or something that would intentionally just provoke and piss people off. Yeah, I think you still you still maintain your interest in provocation, but su- suddenly you turn around, you look at the your allies and you're like actually like, Oh, fuck you. <laughs> and yeah, so I can understand that mentality. But yeah, yeah. I, I feel like um, one thing that like the store just definitely just benefited from the amount of like aggressive and angry feedback I got. Like it was 
I really rarely got like positive reviews and like when people would send me emails, I very rarely get emails from people being like loved it. People would be like, I, I hate that you're doing this. I hate that you've done that or whatever. And that would, for someone like me, like a comment like that is like a provocation and it's just like, okay, like unless it was someone I cared about or someone close to me, like it, that, those kinds of things would just push me even further to kind of really distance myself from those kinds of people. So Distort just really ended up in a way different space than it started, but with a similar spirit that I wanted to document these moments and I even still feel like fanzines at their greatest, like uh, really like tightly packed moments that make sense for, for for that time that they come out. And then if you're not tapped into that, if you're outside that world and you pick something up like a few months later or even a, a year later or something, it's going to be confusing. It's going to be strange. And it might encourage you to actually just pay attention to what's happening like on the ground and, and be a bit more active in that respect. Are you still doing any writing? Yeah, yeah. Um, just I'm, I'm, the distort archives I'm putting together comes along with like a fair bit of writing that I'm doing about the history of the bands that I'm doing and the, the zine itself and the, and kind of the what we talked about really kind of the, the process of it happening um, and the ideas that I was wrestling with at each stage. So that's been taking up a bit of time. I've been doing a bit of poetry as well. And for the record store that I do, um, which is called Lulu's in Melbourne, yeah. we, we, we kind of have this weekly homework where we challenge each other to write about music. So that's got me excited to write about music again because I took some time off it because it became this formulaic experience that I really wasn't feeling challenged by and I wasn't listening to stuff in a way that like elicited a kind of legitimate or genuine emotional response. I was kind of becoming that lazy writer that lists a range of influences and impressions that you have and just kind of, you know, for fans of, you know, Grateful Dead mixed with Mob Deep. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, um, I, Dude, that band sounds I, sick. <laughs> I ended up um, after a fair bit of time out of that coming back and just feeling so excited to write about it because we write about it because we're celebrating it and it's easy when you're kind of doing it for a while to forget how much that celebration is important kind of inversely like um it's easy to forget how much fun it is to trash something and how much fun it is to write about how terrible something is because (laughs) you you know that you know you're you can stake yourself you, you know where you stand and you can tell everyone where you stand and say this is utter shit like this is terrible and that's <laughs> fun like yeah so I've definitely been re enjoying getting back into that world for Lulu's I can't really be that naked about my um, anger and um, disgust for something but I've definitely been putting together a new issue of Distort slowly that's just music writing for the last over the last couple of years oh that's amazing yeah, that's a scoop. You got a scoop, man. Yeah. Uh, anything Anything else you can sort of, any other teasers you can throw out about that or? Uh, not really. Like I'm trying to just, I'm trying to document everything that I've done of all these old issues together in a way that kind of explains it in it and documents uh, what's happened in Melbourne and Australian underground music that 
of the bands that I've been in. So that's one project. And the other one is trying to offer just kind of a insight into what's happening right now. Because I'm, I'm very wary of offering a purely historical perspective or just like presenting. If I do anything with this thought, it's always got to be about what's happening. I, I feel very nervous about delving too much into presenting the past. So, for example, that Rick Agnew scene that I did ended up being really popular and, and um, a lot of people have asked about me doing other things like that. But when I did that, its popularity really just kind of immediately made me think, oh, fuck, like this isn't actually what I want to do. Like I want to look at what's happening now. It's it's weird to, to celebrate stuff that, that isn't happening. And that is our episode, which just leaves me to thank Daniel for his time. Check out the music of Straightjacket Nation, Total Control, and The UV Race on Bandcamp. You can keep up with Daniel's podcasting and publishing activities at montpublishing.com. If you want to connect, you can find us on Twitter at Pod. We're back again in a couple of weeks. Take care and see you then.